I think it's probably true and fair to say that if you ask most Christians what their greatest desire is for those who are not Christians, the overwhelming majority, hopefully all of you would say, my greatest desire for those who are not Christians is that they would know Jesus, is that they would know what it means to be forgiven to be reconciled to God, that they would come to a place in their life where they would see themselves as sinful before God and trust in the work of another, Jesus Christ, for their forgiveness, for their reconciliation, for their new life. That's the Christian response. It's the overwhelmingly Christian response. But ask Christians what their greatest desire for other Christians is, And the answer is a lot more diverse. If Ephesians chapter 3 has anything to say about it, however, and it does, one of, I'll put it this way, one of the greatest desires we should have for other Christians is that they would know Jesus. Dot, 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 better. That they would understand the gospel even better that they would comprehend the riches and the profound realities of what it means to be a Christian, for for what Christ has done and what it means, and what it means not only for ourselves but for others. Maybe we should pray for a lot of things, and I think we should. The Bible would affirm we should pray for a lot of things. But the Apostle Paul prays for Christians in Ephesians chapter 3 that they would know things, that they would know things more profoundly and more passionately and more deeply, things about Christ and what he has accomplished for us as Christians. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. We're going to take a deep dive, if you will, in Ephesians chapter 3, and we are going to look at 21 verses of goodness. If you'd like an outline this morning, 21 verses of goodness. I kid. Uh, There really won't be an outline. But for 21 verses, the Apostle Paul addresses Christians, and he really is trying to help Christians know Christ, which sounds strange, but to know Him better so that they would live in light of what they know to be true. Remember now, in chapter 4, in chapter 5, in chapter 6, he's going to call Christians to behave certain ways. He's going to command by the power of the Spirit, or based upon the authority of the Spirit, command Christians to do certain things, non-optional. But before we get there, we need to know things. Chapter 1, we need to know that God's plan of redemption is one that existed before the foundation of the world including things like predestination in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we need to know that we're not good as sons and daughters of Adam, that we're spiritually dead, it says in Ephesians 2. And it's really quite dark and quite depressing spiritually, and yet we learn about God's amazing grace, that God made us alive together with Him. It's staggeringly amazing. So we need to know that as well. And now in chapter 3, we need to know even more about this great plan of redemption in Christ for us so that then we're prepared to live lives of obedience out of gratitude unto Him. So we are doing a mini-series in Ephesians. I thought it was just going to be one chapter. And I was encouraged to do chapter 2. And of course I was encouraged to do chapter 3. So six-part series. Um, it's 
I think profound and deep, but I've done 40 some weeks in Ephesians before, more than once in my life. So we're not doing that kind, but there's something good about seeing big picture, I think. And I would remind you, it was a letter. So we're doing in six weeks what would be meant to be heard in one week, but we do have other things on our schedules. So I would like to do that, but we won't do it this morning. So chapter three of Ephesians, let's go ahead and dive in and look, prepare to be impressed, prepare to be impressed with the gospel, with God in Christ by the power of the spirit for people like us. It says in verse one, for this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. First thing we need to notice there is most translators, the translation I'm reading from, after the word Gentiles, at the end of verse 1, put a dash. And it's, it's meant to capture the idea of interruption in this case. So he begins to talk about something and he gets to the word Gentile and all of a sudden uh, he, has, he goes off on a spirit-inspired, I have to say, pastoral tangent. Okay, it causes his mind to go someplace and, and now for 13 verses? No, 12 verses. Until verse 14, he doesn't pick up his thought again. So we have a 12-verse tangent about how significant it is that he's an apostle, preacher, messenger, helper to Gentile people. And he picks up on that because he knows the Ephesian readers are going to be impressed. I'm not sure you're going to be impressed, but I think with a little bit of prep you'll be impressed, even if you're not already. Okay, so he interrupts himself. And here, he wants to talk about how big of a deal it is, and I want to show you this, of for him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. It says in verse 2, Assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, I'm already intrigued that it's not his, this is a stewardship entrusted to him by God's grace or of God's grace that was given to me for you. And we know who the you are, according to the end of verse 1. The you are the Gentiles. To capture the profound reality, I wrote in my notes, God's grace, dot, 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 to me, dot, 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 for you, Gentiles. That's a huge, huge deal. Maybe not from where we're sitting right now. But it's a huge big deal because the Apostle Paul is what kind of person? He's a Jew. He's a die-in-the-wall Jew. He's a committed, committed, committed Jew. And as a committed, committed, committed Jew, before conversion to Christ, he would view Gentiles, two kinds of people in the Bible. There are Jews, the people of God, and Gentiles or the nations. Okay? Or the pagans, those are all synonyms. There are Jews and non-Jews. So here Paul, a committed Jew, he would view Gentiles how? Um, sometimes they refer to Gentiles as dogs. Okay, um, But certainly unclean spiritually. The Apostle Paul wouldn't have eaten with a Jew. Thankfully, this isn't always the case anymore, but I've been in places before where I had to sit on this side of the dining area because I'm a Gentile, and the Jews got to sit on the other side of the dining area because they're Jews. Still alive and well today in certain respects. The idea is, we're clean, they're not. The Apostle Paul, God's grace to him for you, 
Gentiles. In one sense, I, I say, you got to be kidding me. And the Apostle Paul, pre-conversion, would have said, you've got to be kidding me. Wild stuff here. Now, you might be thinking, what does this have to do with my life? Well, he's going to help you. Let's, let's, let's keep going. It's surprising, though, how the mystery, verse 3, how the mystery was made known to me, a Jew, by revelation. If it wasn't by divine revelation, he never would have bought in. He never would have thought it. He never would have done it. He never would have accepted it. By, by revelation, we could read about that in the book of Acts, but we won't, as I have written briefly. Now, he's going to talk a lot about mystery, so we need to make sure we know what he's going to mean by mystery. This is a mystery, this, this reality of me, a Jew, uh, to you Gentiles, bringing the gospel to you Gentiles. This is a mystery. Now, if you're like me, when I first hear mystery, I think of uh, mysterious or spooky. Ooh, it's, it's not really the idea, okay? Mystery, we're going to look at the data, so don't take my word for it. Well, do for a moment. Mystery as in it hadn't been revealed before. Mystery as in it wasn't clearly revealed before. And when we start looking at Ephesians, here's what we're going to find. Mystery refers to the gospel of Messiah, gospel of Christ, good news of salvation. Uh, uh, Mystery also refers to Jew and Gentile together in the same spiritual entity, same spiritual body called the church. That's a mystery that hadn't been revealed before, that hadn't been made clear before. That wasn't a historical reality before. Uh, Also, the church, because it's the body of Messiah, mystery hadn't been clearly revealed before. Okay, it's those kinds of things are they're they're a mystery. Uh, So I don't want you to take my word for it. Uh, Ephesians one eight and nine, making known to us the mystery of His will set forth in Messiah, set forth in Christ. Chapter six, verse nineteen, the mystery of the gospel. Chapter 5, verse 32, this mystery is profound, Christ and the church. Chapter 3, verse 4, our verse, the mystery of Christ. Chapter 3, verse 6, this mystery is, get this, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus, Christ Jesus through the gospel. Then chapter 3, verse 9, and I'll stop, the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. And now, by divine appointment, the Apostle Paul is making it clear, Jew and Gentile together, on equal spiritual footing, equally converted, equally um, saved, equally reconciled to God. In chapter 2, we learn not only equally reconciled to God, but also there's a basis for being reconciled to one another, even those who were formerly distant. Okay? So, Paul says, I'm going to show you the mystery. I'm making it known. But that's not all. And verse 4 even helps more. Look with me if you would. When you read this, you can perceive my insight. Remember, it's insight by revelation. Into the mystery of Christ. What hadn't been clear before. Which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations. See, now it is made known. It wasn't made known before. But then keep reading. It really is important in verse 5. As it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. The reason I said, as it has now been revealed, is because it's not that it hadn't been revealed in any way. It had been revealed in certain ways. We might say, to use biblical language, through shadows, in anticipation, through prophecies, 
through types and shadows, as I just said. But now it is revealed. The, the, what was mysterious before, what wasn't altogether clear before, is now altogether clear. This is it. And he wants us to be excited about this. Do you know if you're part of the church, you're part of where history was headed? If you're believing in Jesus as Messiah, you're part of what is where history is headed. To say it wrongly, but you get the idea. Now back to the mystery. This mystery idea. Think with me, if you would, about a really, really well-written story of a certain kind where there's mystery involved. Think of it in book form, if you'd like. Think of it in movie form, if you'd like. There's something pretty extraordinary about it. I have have a couple of movies in mind where you've got to watch, you've got to watch, you've got to watch. You're starting to understand some things. You're picking up hints here and there. Uh, You're having some light bulb flickers maybe along the way. And then you get toward the end or you get to the end and you go, aha, masterful. The kind of movie where I want to go back and watch the whole thing over again. And I want to maybe get a friend or my wife or my kids. And I want to say, don't read any reviews. Don't talk to anybody about the movie. But you've got to see this. And then I want to watch it again because now I can watch great directing or a great script, a great storyline unfolding. And then you go, I know the key to the whole thing now. It all makes tons of sense. Well, I think all of those are copies. The greatest stories, the greatest mystery kinds of stories with the greatest aha moments are all copies of the ultimate plan of redemption. That God, before time begins, before you even hear the beginning of the soundtrack starting, it's already planned in everything. Remember Ephesians 1.11, who works all things according to the counsel of His will? Everything along the way is anticipating and leading toward the mystery which is realized in Christ that had not been clear before. It's exciting stuff. It's really exciting stuff. And just like I want to watch the whole movie over again, especially with somebody who hasn't seen it before, I want to read the whole drama of redemption over again and say, I understand better. History is going somewhere, all by divine appointment, by the predestining plan and purposes of God. Well, keep that in mind if you would. What movies am I thinking of? Any, any mind readers here? No. See, I don't want to tell you because you might not like the movies I like and now we have to fight. And I feel just very inclusive and friendly this morning. And so you can have your truth and I can... Oh, I would never say that. <laughs> you can have your book or movie and I can have mine. As long as we can agree on this one being the best one. Whew, dodged a bullet there. Uh, <laughs> I, I do want to prove to you, and we won't slow down this whole time, I promise. I do want to prove to you that it ha- there has been revelation before this. Um, I want to look at Isaiah 66 as an example uh, of a really cool one. Uh, and then I'll just reference John chapter 5. Remember in John chapter 5, Jesus addresses the Jewish leaders. And he talks about how they're guilty before Moses. He says this in John chapter 5, verse 46, For if you believed Moses, who'd written before, existed before, long before, you would believe me, as in now, for he, Moses, wrote of Jesus as me. 
Now, Moses, we know, we have it on good apostolic authority in Ephesians 3, didn't write with the same kind of clarity. It was in, in, in anticipation. But it wasn't like, oh, where did this come from? No, all according to a plan, even according to Jesus it was. Now, Isaiah 66 is another fascinating one. Even the Old Testament prophets who didn't always know what they were writing about, even were anticipating a day where Jesus would be the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. Where, or someone would be the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. They didn't have it all understood, but the Apostle Paul saying, Ah, this is it! Now I can go back and read Isaiah 66 and it makes more sense. Rumor has it we might have an Isaiah class starting here again sometime soon. So, Once we start Sunday school classes again. If you're new with us, we used to have a sizable, popular Isaiah class and uh, it's been on hiatus, on pause. So hopefully it's starting again sometime soon. Isaiah 66, but I'm going to give away the thunder. <laughs> At the end of Isaiah, anticipating new heavens, new earth, um, anticipating New Jerusalem, I should probably say, instead, because of what he says in the text. But I'll just jump to the punchline first, and then we'll pick up the details. But Isaiah 66, 21 says, And some of them also I will take for priests and Levites, and for Levites, says the Lord. What's interesting about that is, he's talking about, non-Jews. He's talking about Gentiles. And how could Gentiles ever be priests and Levites? The answer is they, they can't be. At least in the Old Testament world. Huh. How could that be? Well, it can be if Jew and Gentile are united through Messiah, the ultimate king deliverer. And now, according to Revelation 1 and 5, we actually are called priests as believers. Priests in a different sense, not in the old covenant economy sense, but we are called priests nonetheless. Now, I don't think Isaiah had all this figured out. I don't think the apostle Paul had it all figured out until Christ came, lived, died, rose again and ascended and the spirit opened his eyes. And now you go, I could read the old Testament and it makes way more sense because I know how it ends. I know the mystery and I'm not seeing it shroudedly anymore. Well, so you don't take my word for it. Ever so quickly, I want to prove to you that are Gentiles that are then called priests and for Levites. How about verse 18? It says, For I know their works and their thoughts, and the time is coming, yet future, to gather all nations and tongues. So the all nations would refer to Gentiles outside of the people of God, the Jews. And he goes on to talk about them coming and they shall see his glory. Maybe we'll drop down for the sake of time to the end of verse 19. And they shall declare my glory among the nations. And they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering unto the Lord. Maybe skipping ahead just a little bit still in that verse, verse 20. To my holy mountain Jerusalem, says the Lord, just as the Israelites bring their grain offering in a clean vessel and to the house of the Lord. How about verse 21? That's where we started. And some of them, people from the nations, also I will take for priests and for Levites, says the Lord. And as far as I know, and I'm in good company, that cannot happen in the old covenant world. It just can't happen. So then how could it ever happen? It could only ever happen if there was a plan all along, a predestined plan, where we would have a Messiah who would be the Savior of Jews and Gentiles. And He would make us believer priests. 
of all nations. Pretty fascinating stuff. So I'm trying to accomplish a couple of things. I want us to see the profound nature of what Paul says. The mystery's been made known to me like it has never been known before. But when you rewatch the movie, you see signs of it and you say, oh, I see, I see. Maybe one other text. Oh, that's probably enough for now, don't you think? I've got one other text, but we'll skip it for now. How about continuing to build on this? Verse six, this mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Members of the same body, members of the same spiritual entity and partakers of the promise of Christ. I want you to read that more profoundly than you probably are as a 21st century American English reader. The promise in Messiah, Jesus through the gospel. So I want, I want you to read it that way. And for those of you who've been here a long time, I apologize. Sorry, not sorry. But we, we, we read it in two lazily away, not nuanced enough way, because remember in the New Testament, Christ, Christos, Greek, Old Testament, Messiah, Mashiach, Hebrew, they're interchangeable to the point where, where you do, to the point where, where you do have a, a Greek version of the Old Testament, Messiah would be translated Christos. It would be translated Christ. And I think it's really helpful for us to read it that way because when Paul talks here as members of the same body, Jew and Gentile, and partakers of the promise in Messiah Jesus, Old Testament reality, Jewish reality, but now the Jewish reality isn't only for the Jews. Christ, Messiah. Remember, a Messiah is an anointed king who would provide, who would protect, who would care for his people. And we've been anticipating because we've had other Messiahs, people like David. David was a Messiah, a Messiah, a Christ, a king. And he was a good one, but even the best ones we know aren't what they need to be. There's going to be an ultimate Christ, an ultimate Messiah, who is none other than Christ Jesus. Jesus is that Christ. But the amazing thing we're seeing here that we need to know he's not only the Messiah for the Jews. The same Messiah for the Jews is the Messiah for the Gentiles. And where do they find their reconciliation? Chapter 2 and chapter 3 in the church, the body of Messiah. Body of Messiah. It's fascinating stuff. It's really amazing stuff. It's no wonder he's so excited about this. The Apostle Paul, we know in light of what he said, would say, I would never believe that. Apart from Revelation. And now he's believing it. And he's so believing it, he's writing from imprisonment. Communicating to the Gentiles, you know what? If you've got this figured out, you can even be imprisoned. You can even be persecuted. You can even be suffering in the here and now because it puts everything in perspective. It's all worth it if you're in the body of Messiah, the spiritual entity, which is none other than the new creation entity. Verse 7 says, Of this gospel, this gospel, this good news reality in Jesus that sinners can be reconciled to God and sinners can be reconciled to each other. Chapter 2, I was made a minister, I was made a servant according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. So this is great, this is grace, this is power. 
Unless we say, isn't Paul awesome? Let's name a cathedral after him. Let's keep reading verse 8. To me, though, I am the very least of all the saints. That's the right self-view. The the greatness is from God, and the greatness is in the message, and the greatness is in Christ. And you know how I view myself? The, The least of all the saints. Quite a thing to say. This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles. The godless, the pagans, the nations, the unsearchable riches of Messiah, ultimate deliverer, King Christ. Just for effect in my notes so I could understand the, 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 the punch that it packs. Gentiles, dot, 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 riches of Messiah. That is a mystery now made clear. You know, it's one thing for the sinful Jews to have a Messiah and be saved and to be reconciled to God. I mean, that's extraordinary, right? Chapter 2, dead in trespasses and sins. That would include the Jews. For the Gentiles who aren't even in the, in the right spiritual zip code, who don't even have the right book, who don't have the right heritage, who are not tied to the right covenantal promises, it seems at least. Wow, Gentiles. Riches of Christ for the Gentiles. I had to correct myself there for a minute because I I said something about didn't have the right covenantal promises. And in a certain sense, that's true. But the covenantal promises even made to the Jews built in, or maybe I should say in particular to Abraham, built in them was actually a purpose and a plan that would include non-Jews. And if you go back and you rewatch the movie, you go, uh-huh. I think I missed it the first time I read through Genesis. But when I go back and read Genesis, especially in light of how the Apostle Paul references it in Romans chapter 4, I read this and I go, oh, it was there all along. The promise, of, the promise to Abraham in Genesis, this is Romans 4.13, and his offspring that we should be heir of the, excuse me, that he should be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. So, so it's broader even than Israel, it's the world. And then Galatians 3.16, familiar words to Christians. Now the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and your offspring who is Messiah, is Christ. The Gentile plan has always been the ultimate plan to include both of them. Why is that exciting? Well, it's exciting because now we're in on the secret, which it wasn't a secret, but it wasn't made clear. It wasn't revealed in its extraordinary sense. And now it is. And you say, this God who has a purpose and a plan is the best script writer ever. This is amazing. Absolutely amazing. And the time has come in Jesus. So now when I think about Jesus Christ and I think about what he did on my behalf and I think about what he accomplished through his perfect life of obedience, fulfilling the law obligations and his substitutionary atoning sacrifice, dying in my place, though I deserve to die, I deserve the judgment of God and he didn't deserve it and yet he voluntarily gave himself up for us. 
and that he was victoriously raised from the dead for our justification, the Bible says. He's ascended as our great king, ruling, reigning, savior, high priest interceding. This was all part of the plan. All part of the plan. I'm, I'm knowing more. I'm impressed more. Verse 9 says, And to bring to light, think clarity from mystery, to bring to light for everyone, that's Jew and Gentile both, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So it was there, but it was hidden. But it wasn't a plan B. It wasn't a, oh, whoa, how'd that happen? It was there, but it was hidden in God. In His eternal decree, we learned about it in chapter 1, the Creator Sovereign has done it. Then verse 10 says, so that through the church, that body, that entity, the manifold, think multidimensional, multifaceted, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known. That's more revelation terminology, more light terminology, be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Now, if I ask you, what is the church? We can give a lot of good biblical answers. But one thing we don't think about sometimes is what he's keying in on. One thing the church is, is a testimony to the angelic beings. He says so right here. To make, to make known, that's where I'm getting the idea of testimony, to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. To the powers that be, whether they be good angels or bad angels. I think in particular, bad angels, but both can be included. And think with me about this satanic plot to destroy and to bring calamity into this world. Satan tempts in the garden. We know how it ends. We know how it goes. And it's bad. Those who are made in God's image. Now we have sin. Now we have death. Now we have suffering. Now we have division. So we have separation between human beings and God. Alienation to the point of enemy status, Romans 5 says. Then we have hostility with one another. We've been talking about Jewish hostility and Gentile hostility, but now we have hostility with one another. Not only that, we have death brought to the animal kingdom. Now we have death all around. You know what the church is? A testimony to the angelic beings that the God who had a predetermined, pre-purposed, before the foundation of the world plan, the God who works all things together after the counsel of His will, chapter 1, verse 11, wins. And the church is proof of it. I don't think about the church that way. And when we talk about local churches and we talk about people, uh, we talk about all kinds of bad and there's all kinds of bad. But the true church of the living God testifies in the angelic realms that God has had a purpose and plan all along and it's been fulfilled and accomplished in His great Son. My mind is even mentally cross-referencing to things like 2 Corinthians chapter 5. It talks about Christians being new creatures, new creation. Yeah, but the new creation hasn't happened yet. Yeah, but if you're in Christ, guaranteed resurrection, you're actually a new creation. You're part of the new creation. The church where believers gather together, the body of Christ, body of Messiah, new creation. 
oh yes, we have to nuance it. We say things like, yes, we're awaiting the marriage supper. So we, we have um, inauguration of this new creation, but not consummation. But the Bible, because Christ's work is done, speaks of it in past tense terms. Glorified, Romans 8. So the church of the living God testifies. This, this might cause us to want to maybe up our church view. What God has done in Christ, reconciling this way, reconciling this way, guaranteed reconciliation, not only on that level, but on a cosmic level. That's the testimony that is given to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So hostility between God and humanity finds resolution. Therefore, hostility between sinner and sinner finds resolution, chapter 2. And I'm thinking of Romans 8, even the creation finds resolution. Now for the best part. How can I say that? I think it's all the best part. I, I, I don't mind confessing a sin to you here. I've always loved Ephesians 1 and 2 and 3 has been, ah, it's all right, it's, it's, it's pretty good. I gotta put three right up there with the other ones now. Now this is maybe the best part. I don't know how many stars. I'm not gonna take the time to count how many stars I wrote in my margin. Verse 11. This was according, all of this was according to the eternal purpose. All along God has had an eternal purpose. A decree. All along it was according to the eternal purpose that He has realized in Christ Messiah our Lord. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. That, that's a, that should be staggering to our minds. He, he's, he's our Savior if we're believing in Him. Jesus is our Lord if we're believing in Him. He's our Christ if we're believing in Him. And He uses that personal terminology, our Lord. But this has been the plan all along. And all along it's been intended to one day, with the finished work of Christ, give testimony even to the angelic beings. I love verse 11. God God has an eternal purpose. That's not the God of lots of people I know, unfortunately. I want it to be your God, the God who is eternal and He has an eternal purpose, centers on Christ. This helps me to know that if God's eternal purpose is centered on His Son, therefore, it's not God's plan B. It's always been the purpose. This tells me that if the eternal purpose centers on the sun, it does tell me that I probably should watch the whole movie that way. But we're not talking about a movie. The eternal purpose. Remember, that that's a similar statement. Chapter 1, before the foundation of the world. Now that eternal purpose fulfilled in His Son. One divine author... One eternal purpose, one eternal purpose. Pretty wild with huge effects. I want to say all kinds of things. How controversial do you want me to be? Too many times, let me put it this way. Too many times we as Bible-believing Christians 
have learned how to read the Bible and preach the Bible from people who are anti-supernaturalists. So the Enlightenment brought good things in certain ways. We got rid of certain um, superstitions and things like that and certain kinds of bad things. The Enlightenment was helpful, but it wasn't very helpful when it comes to hermeneutics, how to interpret the Bible. It wasn't very helpful when it comes to how Bible-believing Christians should think, interpret, and preach. Pre-Enlightenment Christians believe that God had an eternal purpose. That the Bible, the whole Bible, could be considered a Christian book, not just the New Testament. And we should read the Bible in a Christ-centered way because the eternal purpose centers on His Son. And that plan and purpose was unfolding all along. And yet today, oftentimes, I'm actually told I shouldn't be a Christ-centered preacher and I shouldn't read the Bible in a Christ-centered kind of way. I have to. Read chapter 3, verse 11. I'm a supernaturalist. I think that all of the human authors of the Bible, 2 Peter chapter 1, had one divine author controlling them, working things out all along. I just want you to know, I'm going to do my very best to interpret the Bible and preach the Bible like a Christian. Christians are supernaturalists. I would encourage you to do the same thing. I would encourage you to do the same thing. Verse 12 says, In whom, that is in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence. Through our faith in Him. If you take away the through our faith in Him, you read verse 12 in light of chapter 2 and you'd say, you, are you, have you lost your ever-loving mind? Dead in trespasses and sins? Children of wrath even as the rest of mankind? And you come to God with boldness and confidence? But if you know who Jesus is and you've trusted in Him and you know what He's accomplished, it makes you an heir... If you don't go to God with boldness and confidence, I want to say, have you lost your ever-loving Christian mind? It changes everything. It changes everything for us. Then he says, and this is application-ish. I say application-ish. Spellcheck didn't like that too much. This is application-ish in verse 13 because I think all of this has been application. It's been profound, deep into the pool, robust, awesome theology, truth about God, truth about His Son, truth about us, Jews and Gentiles. So it's all been helping me to think right. But now he's more pointed in his application in verse 13. So I ask you not to lose heart. To put it positively, I want you to be heartened. I want you to be encouraged what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. In other words, to say it's for your good. Paul knows that these Christians are concerned, maybe overly concerned or appropriately concerned for him because he's in prison because of gospel preaching. And he says, I just want you to know that in light of what I've been talking to you about, it's okay. It's okay. Everything else pales. I realize we're not apostles. I realize we're not imprisoned writing to a church at Ephesus. But we are Christians living in a broken world, living broken lives here in this spiritual Babylon, waiting the new Jerusalem. And so we can be heartened. We can be heartened when, when we cannot lose heart, in other words, when things aren't going great. Because, newsflash, 
as many things as we do get to enjoy in this life, and there are many at times, things aren't always going to be going great. But we can take heart. We can take heart. It's worth it in light of the big picture. Okay, now, what a pastoral tangent that was. That warms my heart. I can't claim my pastoral tangents are Holy Spirit-inspired, unfortunately or fortunately, maybe. But I might be inspired by His. <laughs> now, now He's going to get to the prayer. He was, he was always going to pray for them, and now He's going to get to the prayer. And guess what? The prayer isn't altogether different from the, what He was talking about. Now He's going to pray that they would really understand it. So He's been giving them data. He's been giving them information about how great it is to be in Christ. God's purposeful plan has been realized in Christ. Isn't it amazing? Isn't it great? Now he's going to pray that they would understand it better. They would have better knowledge of this. So I will go as quickly as I possibly can. He says in verse 14, For this reason, that sounds just like chapter 3, verse 1, because he's now back on point. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, so I take it, we're talking about the Father, so he's talking in that sense, that would only be true of believers, and yet he is the Father over all, the creator of all that is, so he's that kind of great, the, the how about this, my understanding, and I may be wrong, the great God of all, but he's our Father because of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're heirs because of the Lord Jesus Christ, so I love the way he puts it that way, so the God of all who is our Father, verse 16, that according to the riches of His glory. Well, that sounds like chapter 1, verse 7, the riches of His grace. Sounds like chapter 2, verse 7, the immeasurable riches of His grace. I'm going to stress it that way for you here, the riches of His glory. So Paul's going to talk to this God on behalf of believers, and the God he's talking to is not an idol. He's not the localized God like people had. He's not the family God like some people had. No, he is the God who is the God of the universe. Oh, but he's our father. That's the one I'm talking to. And not only that, we already know and have it on good authority. He is not stingy. He he pours out, he lavishes his grace on us. And I think that's significant because that's the kind of God we're approaching when we're talking to this God in and through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, by the power of the spirit. That should encourage us. It's meant to encourage us. That's the kind of God I'm talking to on your behalf, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened, spiritual growth, spiritual maturity, with power through His Spirit in your inner being. In other words, I'm praying for your strengthening, but notice, and we're going to see, it's tied to knowing things. Knowing the kind of things he's just been talking about. And you might be saying, you know what? I thought knowledge puffs up and is bad. It can be bad and it can puff up. Two things can be true at once in different ways. Without question, his emphasis here is going to be knowing, knowing. You have to know these things. He's been talking about things you need to know. But now he's going to pray that you would know them in a, in a deep, down, profound, stabilizing kind of way. And that leads to strengthening. No doubt he has that in mind. Strengthened with power through his Holy, excuse me, through his spirit in your inner being. And here's what it looks like. Look at verse 17. So that Christ, Messiah, may dwell in your hearts. We learned in verse 16, that's the inner being in our hearts through faith. 
As one commentator put it, the best commentary I know of on Ephesians, it's the center of one's personality, center of the thoughts, center of the will, center of the emotions, and whatever else lies in the center of our being. Using that Old Testament concept of heart. The very core of who you are, I'm praying that you would know these things and be strong in these things so that no matter what happens in your life, you're stable. Look what it says in verse 17 where we continue to read. That you being, ah, two metaphors for stability, rooted and grounded. I'm praying that you would know these things, that you would be strong, strong in a stable kind of way. Rooted and grounded in love, I take it the love of God based upon what we've learned earlier. Some take it a different way. I think rooted and grounded in His love may have strength. Oh, He repeats Himself. Strength. Strength to what? Comprehend. That's another knowledge kind of idea. Knowledge word. Strength to comprehend with all the saints. So this is universal. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? And to know, there he says it again, to know the love of Christ. And I want to pause ever so rudely just for a moment. I have to confess, I tend to not pray this way for you. I tend to not pray this way for other Christians. I tend to pray for people's jobs and pray for people's health and pray for people's marriages. And those are all appropriate prayers. And we're going to get into some of those things in chapter 4, 5, and 6. But do you see the rooted and grounded really is important that it comes in chapter 3 before 4, 5, and 6. How are we going to be strong? How are we going to be rooted? How are we going to be grounded? Well, we need to know things. And we need to know things about the splendor and majesty, majesty and magnificence of the gospel. It's it's not an either or, but it's in in the right order and it's priorities. I'm going to overstate this just for effect. But, and and I'll just ask you for me, in one sense, if you want to choose how to pray for me, pray this way and skip the other stuff. I don't really mean that because I just stepped into unbiblical territory. Maybe we should be praying this way for each other firstly. So we actually have the strength to do the other things we're called to do. That's all. We could maybe see some great things happening for the glory of Christ. Now, I rudely interrupted. Notice back in verse 19, and to know the love of Christ. So we're praying that this would happen, but then how strange, how interesting that surpasses knowledge. You see, the, see what happened there? He's been praying for knowledge, praying that you would know, that you would know, that you would comprehend. And you know what? You can't know this stuff. Uh, no, I don't think he really means that, but on your own. You, this, this is a supernatural. Yes, it has to go here, but it has to, by the Spirit's power, be, be in the very core and center of your being, convictions, knowing, owning things. And that's how you get stable and rooted. And this is why we pray for it, because we could just preach sermons about all this stuff and it wouldn't take the kind of effect we want. We're going to preach the sermons about it, which he did between verses 2 and 13, I think, mini-sermon. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. The idea is completion. That's maturity talk. That's I don't need anything else kind of talk. 
And then he does one more thing, and it's rather interesting. I'm going to tell you things about important realities. And then I'm going to pray that you would grasp these things because it'll change your life. These gospel things will change your life. I'm going to pray that you would get it. And then I'm going to entrust you to God, which is a great look. I think he was telling him the right things. He was praying the right way under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And yet he still says, eventually I tap out and I entrust you to God, which is also the right thing. So we're going to give the right instruction, right theology. We're going to pray for the right things. And then we're going to say, and you know what? Ultimately, I'm I'm going to entrust you to God. Even the best apostles do that. How about verse 20? Now to him who is able, talking to God or about God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think. How about that? How do you get far more abundantly when he said the, the height and depth Breadth. I mean, he was covering all of his bases. But you know what? You cover all of your bases and then you still say things like this. More abundantly than all we ask or think. Well, he just asked for the moon. He just asked for everything. But now, beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, so it is there, it is feasible. We're talking about the Holy Spirit's power, the Spirit of Christ. To Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And now we're ready to receive instruction. But only now. I don't think we should try to manipulate God. We shouldn't. But just a little insight here from the Apostle Paul. When you pray, it's good to appeal to God based upon the most important thing in the universe. When you pray to God, it's good to appeal based upon what's most important to God. And if there is one true living God, the creator, redeemer God, who is eternal, the most important thing to Him is what? His glory. Bach had it right at the end of his compositions. S-D-G. Soli Deo Gloria. To God alone be the glory. Let's pray for each other. Let's pray the right way based upon the right content. Then let's entrust one another to God in prayer. And then let's be able to, because if I'm praying for wacko things, I can't legitimately say this, to God alone be the glory. God, do this for your own fame. Do this to show your power. Do this to show your generosity. Do this to show your grace. Great stuff. Great stuff. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for time together. Thank you for Omaha Bible Church. Thank you for churches around the world. In particular, as we end this service, I would want to pray for Christians who are experiencing extreme suffering in other places. Some we know about and others we don't know about some even facing their own lives coming to an end because of the gospel. We would entrust them to you, but we would pray that you would build them up and strengthen them with true knowledge in a way that only you could provide. We also pray for ourselves that we would be strengthened spiritually.
that we would be prepared to live regardless of what happens in this spiritual Babylon as we await the new creation. May it be so for the fame of the Lord Jesus Christ in whose name we pray, amen.